Welcome back. I'm Ryan, and today on the Tiny Podcast special bicentennial episode, I have two historians with us, Walter Woodward and Susan Barlow. Welcome, guys. How you Hi, doing? How you doing, Ryan? Thank you so much for being here. I really appreciate it. Oh, this is great. You only, you only have one bicentennial. <laughs> Glad you got that joke in there. That's there good. There you go. That's good. So what I wanted to talk today about the beginning of Manchester. I feel like that's a pretty good place to start. We're going to do another episode on before Manchester, but maybe that's a good place for us to start the conversation, kind of that transition, you know, between when, you know, there was the indigenous people that were here before and now what we, you know, our European settlers or so. What, how did that look? Did, Susan, how, how did that transition maybe look back then? The Native Americans were here 10,000 mm. years ago. So when we talk about Manchester's bicentennial, 1823, it's like quite recent compared to um, that time. Also, mm. in the 1600s, Thomas Hooker coming down from Massachusetts, that's when people started to settle in the Manchester area. And it, it's such a pleasure to work with Walter Woodward because he's got the Connecticut history and I'm a little bit more on the Manchester side <clears throat> but also that when you're studying Manchester or you're studying Connecticut you're studying American history mm. it's a mic it can be a microcosm of how we came from a sawmill on a river the Hockenham River to more and more industry along the river to farming that eventually um, gave way to industry but mm. Studying the smaller, you get a sense of the larger, don't you? I'm, I am the. I was. I retired as state historian last year, but I was state historian for 18 years. Mm. And the thing I became absolutely convinced of is that history is more real, that you feel a stronger connection to it, and it makes more sense when you study the history that happened around you rather than the history that happened in far and distant places. And everything that's happened in American history had an impact here. People lived their lives. Any event that you can think of had ramifications for Manchester. Mm -hmm. So I completely agree with you. you if you want to study American history, start close to home mm -hmm. because it will mean more and be more powerful. That's a really good point. I, that's, uh, that's a very interesting way of thinking about that. And in, in Connecticut, we're really lucky because we were, the, we're one of the 13 original colonies. We were settled in 1635, which is right at the beginning of the American experiment. When I say settled, of course, and Susan made that really clear, th that settlement by Europeans was not the first settlement of this region. And it's, if I were a Native American sitting here right now, mm -hmm. I would be thinking, and I'm sure there are Native Americans, indigenous people listening to this podcast who will think, boy, they're making a big deal out of 200 years. That's <laughs> one-fifth of 1,000 years, and indigenous people have been mm -hmm. here for maybe 12,000 years. Yeah. So, so the... The time scale is different. The sense of history is different. But having said that, let me say that a tremendous amount has happened both in America and Manchester in two centuries, and it is great to have a chance to focus on that 
at the time of a big anniversary. Absolutely, yeah, well said. And you can look at it throughout Connecticut. Some of the patterns, the New England patterns, really not just Connecticut, but you'd have a town like the Brass City or the Silver City, Meriden. But in Manchester, it was a little bit different because Mm. we did have cotton mills going back into the 18th century and woolen mills, paper, silk, it was a wide variety mm. of businesses and, and never a company town, so to speak, where, you know, you have a sense of the employees are really being abused mm. because the big mill owners could set all the rules. Mm. Let's, let's talk about that, too. So, we, you know, we, we're getting to the mills, and I know that that's a big part of Manchester's history. What was what, what what were people doing before the mills? Was it mainly agriculture? You know, because you know we're talking about you know mills need you know things to mill. So did that was it mainly al- kind of where it started with agriculture, and then people kind of just moved into that, or how did that go? Well, it was it it was standard in New England mm-hmm. when Europeans arrived, and this is in the days before the Industrial Revolution. They they needed two things as a prerequisite to really establishing any permanent settlement. Okay. They needed a sawmill and they needed a grist mill. Mm-hmm. You had to be able to turn logs into wood to build houses and it was an extremely laborious process to do it by hand. Mm. So having a sawmill was the great labor saving device of the 17th and 18th century. And having a grist mill did for the food you ate every day what the sawmill did for wood. It's so simplified and speeded up the pace of grinding grain. Mm. And, and maize was, from the beginning, an essential food to English settlers. Mm-hmm. So having, having a grist mill to grind corn, to grind grain, having a sawmill were essential. When people settled Hartford, the Thomas Hooker's people in 1635 and 6, the date people usually accept is 1636. People were here the year before, Mm -hmm. scouting it out. But what they did is they settled on one side of the river, but they very quickly saw that the land on both sides of the riverbank was fertile, good land. So pretty soon they were canoeing across or flatboating across or barging across. They were crossing the river to get to land on the other side. And over the first four decades of settlement, these English settlers gradually spread out from the riverbanks. Mm. And what was it, 1670? The first uh, sawmill in Manchester was 1672 as documented. There you go. Yeah. So. And it was the Hockenham River, right? That well, I th- I'm looking here. It says Bigelow, which runs okay. into the Hockenham. Sure. Just Th- in that Hilliardville area. Now, is Bigelow a stream or a creek? or? It depends, <laughs> doesn't <laughs> it? But right now, I would say it's more like a small river. Mm. Well, in, in 1673, it had just the right water speed, and, and mm. you know, it had the right features that it made sense to someone that we, if we put a mill here. Was it a sawmill or a gristmill? Sawmill. If we put a sawmill here, we will have the kind of water supply we need mm. to 
be able to help people get the lumber they need for all the various things for which they use lumber. And that was the ubiquitous building material. Yeah. Okay. So, so sawmills and grist mills then, that was kind of the start. That's like your starting point. For from, from an industrial from standpoint, an industrial the starting point was the land. Okay. The, these were the, these initial settlers depended on agriculture as much as anything else. We were an agrarian colony mm. for the first 150 years of settlement. Yeah. D- agriculture dominated both the economy and people's lives, but these sawmills and gristmills kind of became the nodes of uh, what was a barter economy. Mm. Wasn't a lot of cash going around, right. so people, you, you would go and you would trade what you grew for the things that you needed. The, I, I imagine at Manchester Historical Society, they probably have some of these early account books that uh, I know there are in the state archives and mm. other places. There are these these millers became merchants almost by default mm. because to grind your grain, mm-hmm. they would be paid with a percentage of the grain that they ground for you. Well, then they would use that. They would trade for people in other places. They'd collect goods, and then you would come to them and say, okay, I'll give you five bushels of corn. I'm making all of these Yeah, of course, up. right. Five bushels of corn for you know, uh, uh, four ounces of sugar and a half a bottle of rum and mm-hmm. some flour yeah, yeah, or whatever. But, and this was the way trade went on. Mm. And people lived, we think of credit cards now, we being a credit card society, they were as often as dependent on credit in this period in a different mm. way. The merchant would keep an account book. There'd be a page with your name on it. You would come and you'd say, I'll give you this. I'm going to buy this. Or I'll take these goods and I'll give you stuff when it grows. I'll yeah, when, when, my, when I when – So I, over yeah. a year, you would build a long list of credits and debits. Mm. When it came one, – once a year or whenever, the merchant would say, let's settle accounts. Maybe when the harvest came in and you were relatively flush – but this, we often think, when you look at the records, people seem to be, in this period, almost paranoid if somebody says something bad about them. They'll take you to court. They'll steal you. Mm-hmm. A lot of litigation over people sullying your reputation. Mm. And I used to wonder, you know, were these, were these people just, you know, quick to take offense? But I I realize, at least I think this is true, that someone's reputation was absolutely indispensable to their credit mm. line. If you got a reputation of being an undependable person, uh, 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 a mean person, someone who didn't live up to their promises, your credit line gets cut off and you are you're in trouble. So reputation, mm. kind of credits through these merchants. You see the beginnings of the world we live in taking shape in very small ways mm. in this agricultural economy. Interesting. Does that make sense? Mm. Mm. 
yeah. and sheep and cows and I forgot the sheep and cows. And That's right. <laughs> yeah. I will give you a sheep if you give me. Oh, the I need clocks. Where could I get clocks? Oh, let's see. I think we could maybe <laughs> carve some wool. <laughs> there you go. Interesting. Yeah. So we go from these these grist mills and these and these you know lumber mills. And we build the infrastructure. We build these settlements. Now, we're getting closer to 1800. We're getting closer to, you know, we're getting closer to the start of Manchester. What was happening, you know, right, what was happening like right before, like, the birth of Manchester? Susan, maybe that's something you can speak on. You know, what was happening, you know, Manchester was established in 1823 is that correct as a separate town from east hartford as yes. a separate town from east hartford but okay so when did that when did yeah. when, when when did east hartford you know when did that happen then when was that connection well it all had to do with the church okay because you had to go to church of course the congregational church the puritan church was also the government oh, okay. and so well and the, there was a reason behind this it's the Puritans who settled Connecticut, that in the fundamental orders, the first written constitution, some people say, the fundamental orders of Connecticut in 1639, the people who found Connecticut say that their desire is to create a godly society. Mm. But they were Calvinists as well. And as Calvinists, they firmly believed that most people, that, that the basic component of human nature was that people were depraved. Mm. They weren't just naturally bad. They were naturally awful. Mm. <laughs> that their default position was to do the wrong thing. Oh, wow. And, and so they really did believe that God would choose just a few people for salvation. Mm. So they said, if you're going to, form a godly society, you better have a moral regulator as the foundation for your town. Mm. So before you could start a town in Connecticut, you had to form a parish. And what that means is you had to get people together who would agree that they were going to fund and pay for a minister that they would tax themselves to support a minister and a church. And people had to pay taxes to support the church, mm -hmm. but you can imagine if you're supporting the church in a bigger town, mm -hmm. it takes a lot to go off and say, well, we 20 or 30 families, we're going to go over here. And now it's, it's much more convenient for us to set up our own church mm -hmm. than to drive, you know, to cross the river to get into Hartford right. to go back to right. church. So... So they set up these churches, mm. and the parish becomes the foundation, right? Exactly. And it was 1773 that Orford Parish was established. That was East Hartford and Manchester. So you didn't have to go to Hartford, but your parish was uh, a combination of East Hartford and Manchester. And there were efforts to get Manchester incorporated as a separate town, but they didn't come to fruition until 1823. So our history goes back to East Hartford. We're kind of interesting uh, siblings, I guess. Or, <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, a sister. Uh, was was the parish in Manchester hived off from the church in East Hartford? Was it? Yes. People who had been the mem. This is the Connecticut pattern. Yeah. There is an existing church. 
the the people to get more land for their children they're moving away from the center of the town they get farther out it is an inconvenience to come to church every sunday but you're required to do it mm. so it becomes both time and cost efficient but also it's sort of a symbol of your independence when you can establish a church mm. so all over Connecticut, there is a mother church that hides off as people spread out sister yeah. churches mm. or daughter churches. Right. See, we're getting, again, back to that theme of learn about Manchester or East Hartford, and you have a better sense of the history of the state. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Everybody's connected. Mm. In, you know, we're, we're all in this together, whether yeah. we like it or not. Yeah, but, yeah it's true. But even before 1823, we did talk about industry. There was the Pitkin Glass Works mm. that um, they operated from 1783 to 1830. You've probably seen them over there at the corner of Pitkin and uh, Parker Street. Okay, looks yeah. like a ruined castle. It's great. It, look, it actually looks like a kind of a stone building or factory that just fell down and the ruins are still there yeah mm. yeah but and am i right that I, I i vaguely recall reading somewhere that pitkin who was one of these standing order you know the the elite family so it's not surprising he'd get the monopoly on glass production but that was given to him because he provided gunpowder during yes. the american revolution mm. yeah so, so he was given a 25-year monopoly. So it's a, you know, this is a reward. People need glassware. Locally produced glassware has mm. got to be in high demand. Right. And he's got a 25-year monopoly on it. That was a big deal. The Pitkins were a very big deal mm. in East Hartford and Manchester. Have they done any digs on the site of the glassware? Yes. UConn has come out a couple of times. And what do they find? Is oh, it yeah. They find parts of the crucible. They find... Um, Shards. There's so many shards that they just like shovel them into buckets and That's tell amazing. the kids they can take them home. Yeah. <laughs> um, but if you find a real Pitkin glass, which had the kind of swirly lines on them, I have a friend bought a Prius and sold one body. Wow. They're really. Wow. Uh, collectors love them. Yeah. Well, and it you know it's amazing. This it, he starts this in 1783, right? Mm -hmm. So this is right as the American Revolution is ending. Yorktown is in 1781. The Treaty of Paris is in 1783. So you can see Pitkin himself is probably thinking, well, you know, gunpowder is not going to be as good a business <laughs> as it has been. <laughs> what else am I going to do? And he. Yeah. At least for a couple years. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. For twenty-five <laughs> years, there must be something else I mm, can do. Mm. But that is—it's really interesting to me that this happens in—it it was called Orfordston, Orford right? Parish. Orford yeah. Parish, right? That this business or this manufacturing manufactory is started in Orford Parish, and am I right? Just about the same time. The Hilliard Mills begin the yes, which also were the 1790s. I think the Hilliard Mills got started, and the Union Cotton Mills, which were over in the North End. Um, it did seem like almost all at once. It, well, what it must have seemed like agony to them <laughs> to like really well, go out of their way to even to build 
a glassworks. Like what, is, what is interesting to me is that all around Connecticut, people are beginning to think about manufacturing as the new economy. And the reason they're doing this is because after a century and a half of farming Connecticut land, they didn't have fertilizers. They didn't have Scots, and mm. they didn't have miracle Grow. Right. You, you, and they, m- many of them didn't collect manure to use as fertilizer either. The land was simply tapped out in a lot of places. Yeah. It was, and at the same time, the average Connecticut family had eight children. As those children grew up, it was an expectation that you are going that you as the godly parents are going to help them get established on their own. Mm. Uh, usually, that's with land so that they can farm too. By 1750, 1770, there's no more land to give away. Right. The land that you have is tapped out. People start leaving Connecticut during the same period. They begin out migration in droves. It starts as a trickle after the revolution as people who went through Vermont and northern New England during the French and Indian War and the Revolutionary War, they thought, wow, that's beautiful country up there. We'll go, yeah. you know, we'll go set up there. They moved to Vermont, and usually a winter was about enough for them sometimes, yeah. too. <laughs> <laughs> Me, too. And then they started going west, and, you know, they moved to what is still called the Western Reserve of Ohio. Mm. It was a part of northern Connecticut or northern Ohio that Connecticut, it had been included in the original 1662 charter. Mm. When Connecticut joined the other states in giving up its western lands to the new United States to pay, they gave up this land with the proviso that the states would not be responsible for the war debt from the revolution. The national government would take it on. So you give us your land out west, we'll take on the debt, we'll call it even. Connecticut said, great, but we want to keep a chunk of this land in northern Ohio to give to people who got burned out Mm. when the British came and uh, it, it, we like a know. sanctuary almost, or well, like a, a, but also a place to it's just start. Our, it's where these people, it's where we th- they actually there were two bodas. One is we're going to have land for these young Connecticans mm-hmm. who are being, um, who are just being forced out because they can't make a living, but also we are going to spread our New England. Puritan or whatever you'd call it, Puritan Yankee culture, mm-hmm. westward. We're you know we're gonna. This is a missionary movement. We're moving west, and we're gonna we're gonna pack up our values and ship them with them. Hmm. So that's going on. It does not solve the problem of how you're gonna make a living in Connecticut, and that's when people discover that they can use running water and the power of New England's rivers to run, to completely transform their economy Mm. and turn it into a manufacturing society. That, that between 1780, really 1790 and 1860, New England was transformed and Connecticut 
you know, right in the thick of it, from an agricultural economy to an industrial society. And what is fascinating to me is it seems like Orford Parish is anticipating becoming manufactured or becoming Manchester even in the beginning because the cotton mill and the woolen mill and the glass works, mm. those, that's a concentration of early industry in one place that is, it's happening earlier than in most parts of Connecticut and with a concentration you don't find in a lot of places. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's true. It's interesting. And the East Hartford section of Orford Parish had the better land for tobacco or whatever, you know, growing. Well, I hope Manchester was able to engross that when they and Yeah, Manchester is like half and half. Uh, you know the seed packets that tell you where the climate, it yeah. goes mm -hmm. right down through the center of Manchester. The side where Highland Park is, rocky, colder by five degrees, mm. um, the part closer to East Hartford, more temperate and, and better soil being closer to the river. You know, I used to live right out in Highland Park. No <laughs> one told me it was colder when I moved there, <laughs> but I sure found out. Yeah, it's amazing. But yeah. it, it's a like a microclimate, I guess, as you, you go farther there. But Paper, there were paper mills there in the Highland Park section dependent on that water to run the machinery, but also to dump out the waste. A lot well of waste involved with paper That making. became, when I was teaching, one of the things I did was teach a course on the Connecticut River and the story of the pollution of the Connecticut River, mm -hmm. especially as these industries went from small manufactories to industrial complexes it it, it was awful yeah. the, uh, people didn't they didn't think they you know that there's there's a saying that I learned when I started to study environmental history and it's that the solution to pollution is dilution mm -hmm. and that's what that's what people thought for a long time if you dump your waste in the river there's so much water It'll dilute. It'll yeah. take care of itself. Not a problem. But mm -hmm. by 1850 and 1860, it's become a big problem all the way along the Connecticut River. In fact, they can no longer drink the Connecticut River water in Hartford. They they try to do that. They find out it's you know it's not. Yeah. It's no longer safe, both because of industrial <coughs> pollution and human waste that's coming down the river. So. And a lot of that pollution is, by the 1880s and 1890s, it's coming out of east of the river yes. from these industrial complexes. Paper and, and, yeah. and fabric, textiles. Both they of those are of very high, highly polluting production processes. Yeah. The dye works. You know, there are people who, in my lifetime, talk about growing up along the river where these these either paper mills or fabric mills were and they would know what they were doing because they'd look and see the color of the water would depend on what they were dying that day oh yeah. <laughs> and you know it, what was it Catherine Hepburn did a film called the called the long tidal river or something in mm. the 1965 where she said the Connecticut is 
America's most beautiful cesspool. Yeah. <laughs> and and she, she hit the nail on the head then. And we've made amazing progress since 65. Yeah. Uh, Connecticut was the first state to pass a Clean Water Act. Yep. And um, Definitely comes from a history. The <laughs> yeah, the water is now swimmable <laughs> all through Connecticut, right. which is pretty amazing. It's a good and turnaround. It's Union Pond right out here mm -hmm. from our studio where we are here in Northwest Park yes. was filthy and mm. smelly. And now it's lakefront property, <laughs> and well, eagles are flying around yeah, Union yeah. Pond. It's yeah. amazing. Well, it, you know, in a world where you think things are just going off the rails, it's really nice to step back and realize that there are victories and there are good things going Absolutely. on. Absolutely. That's one thing about history that people will say, oh, the good old days. The good well, you know, women couldn't vote. You mm. couldn't drink the water. Um, children died um if you had a family of eight maybe you had 12 pregnancies and some mm. just didn't survive yeah. to adulthood so looking back at history it was not necessarily the good old days right you know, no, the, you know they're only good because you look back at them when you're living <laughs> through it's all perspective like, they could be better <laughs> they could be better yeah all over connecticut you had between 1790 and 1830 all these bills, these factory villages crop up. But here, you didn't have a single complex creating a village. You already had a concentration of manufacturing that I think helped the General Assembly and helped the people here really think we can be, we can be extraordinarily successful as a manufacturing complex. Do you think that's what was driving them? Yeah, yeah. The, the title, Manchester, and its relation to Manchester, England, the um, rise of various industries, too, that was a slightly different pattern. There were two glassworks. There was the Mather Glassworks and the Kipling Glassworks. We think of the Cheneys, they began in 1838, but there was actually a Jones, Jones silk mill over in the north mm. end of Manchester that started even a little bit earlier. But that was a very touchy business in the beginning with people trying to grow their own silkworms, which only ate the leaves of one of the nine varieties of mulberry trees, oh. which was not um, – this was not a favorable climate for that particular tree, so there was a – a lot of, um, I guess false you could starts. call it false starts. Mm. And um, <coughs> it's always amazing to me. It amazes me that people kept on after, like, coming to complete failure. The floods, the flood of 1869, the flood of 1909, how they went on again <laughs> after. You know, one of the, the – there was a, a dissertation written about the Connecticut River maybe in the past ten years that – I found really insightful, it, and what the the scholar who wrote that dissertation noted that I hadn't thought of is that until you got to the railroad era, people who lived along the river or along rivers expected them to flood. Mm -hmm. That they knew, you know, 
when spring came, the snowmelt from up the Connecticut mm-hmm. River was as likely to produce flooding as not. And they, they built their riverfront shops and factories and stores expecting that when the flood came, they'd get everything up to the second floor, the water would <coughs> come in, and they'd clean it out when the water left. You know, it, we can't imagine that, but that, mm. you know, and they'd canoe around or boat around from store to store. This was an average, this was business as usual yeah. during this period. But once you get railroads mm. running along the riverbank, now you can't do that anymore. Mm-hmm. You've got to have regular time. You can't flood out a railroad and bring it back. And that now you start getting the levees and the need for flood control. Yeah. And this idea that a flood is unnatural, that it's something that we can't live with, he argued comes out of this really the advanced industrial revolution. Mm. I think that's really fascinating. Mm. Yeah, kind of like the controlling of the river. Well, you have to control it once you get these huge investments in transportation Mm -hmm. that are, you know, you can't say, okay, the 953 to Manchester, although we're doing a lot with the airlines these days, Mm -hmm. the 953 isn't going to happen because, well, (laughs) you know. (laughs) (laughs) So, I mean, I... I, um, I didn't write the dissertation, so I didn't do the research, but I found that to be extraordinarily interesting. And it, mm. it has mm. me rethinking what flooding means mm. to various people at various times. When are the, the, the great floods in Manchester happened when? Well, 1869. The only dam that remained was Union Dam, oh, the wow. one that's quite near here. Everything else. Was washed um, out. Was washed out. Wow. Yeah, it was. You would consider it quite disastrous, but of course, some of those dams weren't like what we consider a dam today. They might be an earthenware, an earthen dam, uh, or maybe no mortar at all. Just some. Pile was that a spring flood? Was it a Connecticut River flood that caused it? Was it in or the? Was f- I think that was in the fall. That yeah. particular one. Mm. Or it could have been the hurricanes. The. The fall hurricanes. Yeah. yeah. Oh, speaking of villes, though, I think mm. Manchester, like the New England bills. pattern, we had uh, Lydallville. That was where Lydall whole paper mills were. You had Cheneyville, or the, right. where the Cheneys were in the South End, which was not the most prosperous in the beginning. In the beginning, it was the North End, which was called Union Village, after the Union Continent. That's where the main line went through, the railroad oh, main line went through. Because the South End uh, was not yet prospering. It right. was still struggling with the... With when did the railroad come to Manchester? That was 1849. 1849. <coughs> the so Hartford, Providence, and Fishkill Railroad yes. came. You could go to Boston. You could go to Willimantic. Um, you could go to New York going the other way. And um, it wasn't until 1869 that the... South Manchester Railroad was built, that little two-and-a-half-mile spur that's now a rail trail, very mm. popular rail trail. And, oh and yeah. there's this wonderful person named Susan Barlow who <laughs> leads people on on hikes along the old rail trail. Yeah. yeah. It's, an amazing, it's amazing that we ever got it back together anyway because it had been all broken up. How, uh, did, how did that come yeah. about? It, it's quite a story. 
the um, the well freight ran along those rails into the 1980s yeah long after the long time uh, after the um, teenies had left but they were bringing uh, rolls of newsprint down to the Manchester Herald sure. which which ride quite well on railroad cars and there was a conglomerate of uh, businessmen <coughs> if you want to characterize them not as sharks or pirates but anyway <laughs> they told the town when the property became available from the New Haven Railroad don't buy that property don't buy that property that's a terrible thing for this the town to buy. This is in the 1980s? Yes. Oh, my goodness. <coughs> they bought it themselves. And then they tried to sell it back to the town for outrageous amounts of money. And then it's parts of it were sold. There was an easement to the electric company, so it had um, electric poles going along it. There was along Hilliard Street, there was a business that bought like a three-quarters of an acre there. So there were different parts of it um, south of Middle Turnpike, there are some strip malls there along Broad Street, um, the Moriarty Brothers area, uh. or uh, Shoprite. I'm not Shoprite, Savemore. So it had been. So, how did it get repackaged so that it all came back together? It's again? a miracle. One of the owners um, passed away, and his sons said, This needs to come back together. Oh and wow. sold for $55,000, which the father had been trying to sell for sure. unconscionable amounts of money to the Manchester Land Trust from all the way from the north end to Middle Turnpike. So at, at least a linear mile and then the related acreage around the That's edge of it. And then it took another, I don't know, 12 or 14 years. The town of Manchester gradually put together everything south of Middle Turnpike. So now you can, g you can follow the entire railroad again. That's but it amazing. Was, it and is amazing. Yeah. It's a miracle that it ever came back together. We wondered if it would ever happen in our lifetime. And some of the neighbors, oh, we don't want any rail sure. trail. Um, they had freight trains going through their backyard. Really? Well, well, yeah, but originally. then they didn't want hikers. Up until but they didn't want 1980, correct? Yeah, yeah, so yeah. For a long they didn't time, want yeah. hikers. <laughs> but that's, n that's a pattern, too, isn't it? Yeah. Throughout New England, uh, a lot of towns had a very difficult time getting rail trails put back together because mm. neighbors were fearful of what sure. would happen. What, maybe it's going to be know, motorcycles if, if going there. If the train's there. going through, it keeps going. If somebody's walking through, you never know what they're going to exactly. do. Exactly. Yeah. That's, yeah, I'm amazing. <laughs> well, why don't we talk about that the, the railroads a little bit because I know that you've got a lot, of, a lot of history and a lot of knowledge with that. It's interesting that the Cheney Railroad, well, the Cheney's, weren't prospering in 1849, not to the extent that they did in later decades. Mm. So that's why the main line went where the major industry went where was. Where the business <laughs> was, sure. And mm. by the late 1850s, when the Cheneys began to prosper, they went to the to the main line and said, mm. "Well, build us a little spur," which they did in Rockville. There's all little spurs sure. throughout. Um, the towns that are served by the railroad, but mm. they were turned <coughs> down, and um, the Cheneys just opened up their own pocketbooks and built this two-and-a-half-mile railroad, which is actually, when you add in the railroad yard and the siding and yeah. the uh, the roundhouse and all, it was more than two-and-a-half miles of track, 
Hmm. And so it, where was the roundhouse for the cheese? For that was over near the mill, yeah. on um, south of the Park Street Bridge. Not much. You can hardly see any remains yeah. of it yeah. today. But there were all throughout the railroad yards. There were coal storage buildings, and yeah. uh, there was a shop where you could sign in your packages that were going in and out. Um, and what happened to all those facilities? Did they just decay, and or were they? Mostly they decayed. I think there was a little arson here and there, some vandalism. Mm. But they were not... That's called insurance today. <laughs> 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 they were not built for the ages either. They were more, I think you'd characterize them more as shacks than, yeah. uh, than office buildings. But an interesting thing about the Cheney Railroad is that, of course, it was bringing in raw goods. They were buying their raw silk in the Orient oh, in okay. Asia. After this fiasco of trying to grow our own silk, I was going to say, is that why? And then they yeah. were shipping out finished goods, yeah. but it was also a passenger railroad. Right. The no trolleys yet, no buses, sure. no cars, and very few people owned a horse and carriage. Those were just the rich people. They would they would take that railroad for church even, wouldn't they? Was that was that you something? You could go, yeah. So. Original, the original Catholic church in Manchester, St. Bridget's, mm -hmm. was in the north end. This was before St. James was built in the yeah. south end. So if you wanted to um, work at Cheney Brothers and you lived in the south end, let's say, mm -hmm. you could go to church in the north end. Or you live in the north end and want to go to the theater, the Cheney Hall, mm -hmm. you, you could take the train. So what were the fares like on the train? They were un like four cents. Yeah. Unbelievable, <laughs> you know? That was the. Can was you see the, the picture of the? Yeah, we'll definitely for anybody for anybody year. watching, we'll definitely get a, a copy of that and put it on the video. Yeah, yeah so you. That's a great. You idea. could take your. Can you describe what we're looking at? So this is a passenger car. I know the windows are a little bit broken, but um, it wasn't like a trolley, which were often open mm. air. This was yep. like a little. Like a little house that yeah. rolled along. Like if we think of now, the were, were the tracks the same width as yeah. the Fishkill, yes. same gauge? Yeah, they were standard gauge. So you could, if you were bringing in businessmen from New York or Boston, you could send your car from the Cheney Mills up to the main line, mm. the depot in the North End, switch it, yep. drive out to New York, and bring... People in. Oh. People came in for it's weddings. It's like the company. It's like the company plane, right? Like you the company plane. <laughs> Very similar to the company plane. Uh, as time went on, of course, trolleys and cars became more popular. And uh, by 1833, the railroad was no longer a passenger railroad. It was 1933. Just a 1933. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. 1933. Um, but by then, so much had happened with industry, mm. not just Manchester, but, you know, the, the Great Depression, mm. the, um, the poverty, the, I can't, um, it just went on and on. I, I've interviewed folks who were going to school during the Depression or who were just starting their career as the Depression, in the middle of the Depression, mm. and they, s they often say, we thought it would never end. We yeah. thought this was life. Yeah. This was life that people were going to be struggling yeah. and not being able to find a job. It mm. must have been such a transition for Manchester because it had been it had been growing at such a pace a a and recruiting workers from Europe to come to Manchester yeah. and 
work in the genie milk, work yeah. to help help create these goods, and then suddenly it all dries up. Yeah, yeah. there was such prosperity. Uh, you look back to 1923, the 100th anniversary of the town, and there are just huge parades and concerts and all the buildings had bunting on them yeah. and people were it just there was so much money manchester supported all kinds of arts mm. uh theater and music mm. and painters uh parks and then 1929 and then it just went on and on yeah. who did in in these golden days of manchester who did manchester see as its competitor cities or towns were they you know when they would have a celebration they said boy those people in <laughs> you know, yeah, yeah. Windsor those yeah, people yeah. in Hartford we'll <laughs> show them Ooh. well actually we kind of consider ourselves the silk town or the silk city Patterson New Jersey actually calls itself the silk town mm. the silk city and they were they were quite the competitor but they were not quite as soup to nuts as we were. We had the box factory. The Cheneys made their own boxes to ship stuff out. So a little bit more um, expansive mm. and uh, horizontal, if you will, as well as vertical and selling throughout the world. They had an office. They had offices all around the country and in Paris. So, but yeah, they would consider other towns maybe Patterson, New Jersey. Um, they so, so it was a competitor cities rather than adjacent cities. I would say. We don't yeah. have to show up Hartford, but by <laughs> no. golly, are close in Patterson. <laughs> yes, yes. You know, one of, the, one of the things that my, that the research I've done on Manchester suggested to me and, and most of this came out of my understanding of how the Cheney Mills worked, is that Manchester really did have a kind of, people would say this pejoratively now, they'd, they'd call it a paternalistic factory system. Mm. The, the, idea, the idea that the factory owners have a kind of a parental obligation Mm. Not parental, but that that they caretakers they need to treat their employees well. They need to, you know, provide good housing. That the pay's got to be decent. That this really is. If you work at the Cheney Mills, you're part of an industrial family. That doesn't mean that you know. It's the same kind of family that. <laughs> you have in your domestic nuclear family but there is an obligation to treat people well and that compared to some of the sweatshop industries that happen in other places that just didn't seem to happen in manchester is that a fantasy of mine no, no, no yeah uh, not a fantasy at all the competition really helped the employees that you could go from working at Cheney Mills, you could go to Hilliard Mills, that you could, or Patterson, New Jersey, for that matter, if you were a skilled artisan. And But then you'd have to pick up the 
accent. You know, oh. you sound like you're from oh. Detroit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they'd call you a Yankee for sure, wouldn't yeah. they? But um, the the different businesses had to provide more for the employees. So it was they a competitive labor market. So it was very competitive. It was never a company store. Hilliard Mills had to have company housing. You could rent or rent to own. Um, Bonnie Amai, <coughs> which is over at the other end of Hilliard Street, the soap and uh, scouring powder uh, factory, they had company housing. It wasn't as nice as Tim's. Case Brothers up in the Highland Park area, they had company housing, mm. and it was very commodious. I, I've interviewed people who lived in the very, mm. you know, accommodating houses. And one of the recruiting brochures from teenies would say, oh, and you'll have a backyard, and you can have your little garden, mm. which was true. Some of those towns in eastern Connecticut, uh, or I'm thinking up in Lowell even, where the housing was more like barracks. You could yeah. open your door and you'd be on the sidewalk. Oh, wow. These were maybe not a single family house, maybe it was a duplex or maybe it was a three family house, yeah. but you had a yard. You know, if you go up the river, even to a place like Holyoke or Chicopee and you see the factory housing, it's very dense. Mm -hmm. mm. You know, the, the I don't know what the conditions for workers were, but I know it just physically it looks like people are packed together in ways. Mm. In Manchester, you really have streets and houses, and you know that that fabric is still largely present yes. in the community. Over seven hundred of the teeny mill units are still <laughs> housing for That's people amazing. today. Wow. It really is. A amazing. lot of the Hilliard Mill house. I grew up in the north end. We used to have to go past the Hilliard Mills to get to Hartford, and. They were more like hovels, I would say, yeah. and just kind of um, more to say we have company housing. And the other houses, say in the Bonamai area, were they're still standing. They're still in use today. Mm. But you provided, we provided the housing. You um, helped out the church. And if the church didn't have, a, was just getting started, you didn't have a building yet, maybe you let them meet in your, yeah. um, your office building or, in, or the teeny hall. So what happened, you know, when you get into as early as the 1880s and certainly after World War One, and you start getting labor strikes all over Connecticut, mm. was there a big strike movement in Manchester? Well, it was spotty. I would say it was more spotty. They did, they did go out on strike in, at the Cheney Mills. This would be in 1905 era, and a lot of it had to do with um, remember Cheaper by the Dozen? Hmm. When they had the, the, the people who were going to tell you how to do your job because you could do it better. They yeah. were, uh, and they oh, were the efficiency experts. The efficiency yeah. experts. And they Taylorism. Yeah, Taylorism. <laughs> they would come in and say, well, you know, you could really run two of these looms. Yeah. You could run two of these looms. And oh, we're not going to run two looms. We're, you're just trying to ruin our lives. Because a lot of it was piecework. You got paid. Yeah your salary or your, your hourly rate. And then for extra work, there was a, a way to get paid piecework so you could make more money. And they would be very suspicious of these time and, you know, the guys with the clipboards. Yeah, the time and, and efficiency. Yeah, <laughs> so yeah. that was the cause of That's one of the strikes. Yeah. Mm. Um, at the Hilliard Mills, 
this would be a little bit later and it was heading into the depression and they called it more like slacking you know rather than getting laid off if they didn't have the contract to produce mm. so many um uh so much wool fabric they would tell you well you're going to work 20 hours this week instead of uh, 45 so and you got paid by the hour so you weren't getting paid as much money and they said we're not going to do this we're going out on strike and that you know it's very interesting that in germany the economy is structured so that even now when there's a recession they sort of redistribute hours among factory workers because the idea is we we've got to share the burden together Mm. certainly not you know that's not that's not the way it commonly works in this country. It's like you, when jobs get, when the work slows down, people get laid off mm. rather than. It was uh, a different model, yeah. I would say, because you could kind of predict those. Certain yeah. certain contracts, you know, might come at certain times. You have and any business, you're up and down times, but. When the depression came, it was just <laughs> down. Yeah, they did well, try that to distribute the work. Yeah, that just goes from bad to worse mm. to even worse to still more worse. Still <laughs> more worse. Yeah. People died in this country of starvation oh, yeah. during the depression. It's really frightening. Uh, until we had FDR, uh, some of those programs. But Manchester survived. It changed. It changed mm. the war, unfortunately, I have to say. <laughs> World War Two. we had our um, Pioneer Parachute. That was a huge industry during mm. World War Two. Now, was that a subsidiary <coughs> of Cheney Mills? Because they're doing silk, right? It did start out yeah. as a part of um, Cheney Mills and, and in a Cheney Mills building yeah. um, and starting out with silk. But, of course, as time went on, they couldn't get silk from Japan. And moved into nylon, which was a diff- yeah. all different. Uh, an engineer of engineer who understood the difference between the pull and the air of nylon versus silk. It's fascinating. The whole structure of the of aerodynamics of nylon versus yeah. silk fabric. Yeah. yeah. And I guess if you're making parachutes, that's pretty important. It's <laughs> it's very ar- that's vital. Ar- that's arguably vital. most important. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> And That's then we fascinating. It is. It is. And now we get a little farther in past World War II, and you've got the insurance industry in mm. Hartford that it seemed like a huge percentage of Manchester people were making this commute into Hartford to work at Mother Etna mm. or the Travelers or Connecticut General, c- kind of becoming a bedroom town, if you know, You know, it's will. really interesting to, to think just the way – the railroad facilitated the growth of the industries in Manchester right. because now you could get on a straight line. You could get from the river, which that's where steamboats were how goods traveled until you got to the railroad. Mm. But once you got the railroads, you could take two, you could take a ribbon of steel and a steam engine and metal wheels and go anywhere. You didn't need the rivers to determine mm. where you mm. would travel. So that made the rise of Manchester facilitated that, the, having these railroads, the ability to move goods that way. Mm. So I am 
wondering, and I'm kind of assuming, that it is transportation. It's kind of the interstates and the roads into and out of Hartford, this the highway transportation that now facilitates the former the children and grandchildren of the mill workers now becoming the insurance workers in Hartford, right? Mm. Because they can. Right. Yeah. Except that now in the past fifteen to twenty years, the insurance industry has become so strange. It isn't Mother Aetna anymore. It's not a job for life. Aetna is bought by CBS. CBS? Yeah. How can that be? Yeah. And um, I think Mass Mutual, after they took over Connecticut Mutual, that even moved out of state. Things that we thought would never, would mm. never leave well, here. It's interesting that you would say that. I was reading this morning because it, this is a current deep interest of mine is the what artificial intelligence is going to do to the world we're living in. And I read an article early this morning that this company OpenAI who has who has led the way in this recent rollout of artificial intelligence is saying that eighty percent of our jobs will be transformed by artificial intelligence and that the biggest industry that one of the biggest industries to be changed is going to be the insurance industry because these they call them generative artificial intelligence programs can actually do the thinking and replace the work of people working in the field right now it's it's amazing, mm. and it's also disturbing. Mm. But I think Manchester was the first place that started that. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. just, just trying to circle that thought back around. <laughs> yeah, well, I, you know, the thing is, if people, just as people thought, oh, you know, Cheney Mills are here forever, right? Yes, yes. right? Mm-hmm. If there's anything that history teaches us, mm. and Manchester is an example, mm. is that nothing lasts Nothing's forever. forever. That whatever you know, the place, the place is always the place. Mm. Manchester will last for hopefully for thousands of years. Mm. But how the people of Manchester make their way in the world, make their living, mm-hmm. and what their lives are like, that's going to continue to transform. Decade after decade, and one of the wonderful things about being able to sit and talk about mm-hmm. these transitions is you, you see it as a both a natural evolution that's filled with complete surprises. Right. Mm. So, and so unpredictable. And sharing these stories, you know, how, again with the conversation – how 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 gone is it that you know how how it's still we're still talking about it we're still able to learn about it and i think that that you know it, is it is it still you know are the mills still act no but they they're not gone from our memory they're not gone from our history and these conversations that storytelling keeps the keeps all of that alive well and keeps the, that going. they're not gone from our architecture they're not right. gone from the landscape people are now living in the places where their grandparents and great grandparents may have gone to work, and right. now it's their homes, and this is, you know, this is adaptive reuse, mm. and the, mm. the 
the, the, the lessons of history say that you really, you do build your future on the past, no yeah. matter how transformative mm. it is. Mm. It, 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 it's rare that you just have these complete transformational inventions. They always are adaptations of something that yeah. came before, sometimes dramatic, right. sometimes not. Yeah. And it affects the character of the town. We have Manchester, <coughs> Ted Cummings, the late um, head of the Democratic Party in Manchester and World War II veteran, used to say, well, Manchester's a $50 town. <laughs> we're not Glastonbury. Glastonbury has, a, a, we're not West Hartford, we're mm -hmm. not Avon, we're mm -hmm. not Simsbury. We're not East Hartford. And we're not Patterson. And we're not Patterson. <laughs> <laughs> Those low lights. <laughs> so uh, here's a question: If Manchester is a fifty dollar town, what's Glastonbury? A hundred, hundred. Mm. Oh, the nerve! <laughs> <laughs> well, he was kidding in a way, but in a way, Manchester has always been a home for um, people, immigrants moving here from mm. Europe or Puerto Rico or um, the South. And we've been welcoming. Uh, we've had um, opportunities for, like, parks. Mm. You know, uh, that's another interesting history is parks that used to be private. You had a key to get in, yeah. you <laughs> know, uh, to the and park. And this was true in Manchester as well? No, no, I'm thinking of, no. no because by the, the time 1823 came along, the idea of a park was for yeah, the public. public. It was yeah. becoming for the public. but. That was a lot of Frederick Law Olmsted, too, after sure. his seeing that if you're going to all live in these little houses and you're all going to work in these factories, you need, you still need fresh air. You still need the greenery. You mm. still need for the health of the people. Mm. So, yeah, Manchester has a lot of park and rec. We have a lot of schools that, um, and of course, we're kind of getting, that's another thing we're getting away from is, the individual school, Washington, Macon yeah. Hill, we're going to have a big fifth grade academy and a sixth grade academy. And a, so kids from all over town will be mm. going there. So that's that's a difference, too. It's so hard to predict. I'm going to tell one more. Go for it. That I would have, I kind of grew up with, you go downtown. You could go over north, but they didn't really have the department stores. Yeah. You could do your grocery yeah. shopping. <coughs> but if you want... Hosiery, haberdashery, you know, they had a hat shop downtown mm -hmm. that you would go downtown. Main Street. That was Main Street, mm -hmm. downtown Main Street. And when the parkade was being built, mm -hmm. and it was free parking over there, and, oh, this is terrible, it's going to be the death of shopping. And Well, downtown has become places of restaurants, and the parkade has died yeah. a, a terrible death. But we're going to have the mall. This is the 1980s. Yeah. And Oh, the malls, and people would drive along 84, and they would go to the mall, and this is great for Manchester, all this taxpayer dollars coming in. And now the mall, what? We're yeah. ordering online. Mm -hmm. So though you can't predict what that history mm. would be, as you were saying, you kind of adapt, you kind of cope, and the character of the town somehow kind well, of remains the same. It's it, is, it is interesting to me that this city that from the beginning had these aspirations for industrial greatness enough that they named themselves manchester 
after the great English industrial, you know, the, the English city that symbolized the Industrial Revolution now calls itself the city with village charm, and kind of rightfully <laughs> so. Mm. That's almost an adaptation, too, yeah. that, that along the way, it, the people of Manchester realized, maybe in the 20th century, that the, the heart of Manchester is no longer its industrial power, but the fact that in becoming an industrial power, they created a really livable, welcoming city mm. that does have yeah. village charm. Mm. It's maybe because of its factory villages, right? <laughs> it's factory villages, the town center, the church with yeah. its steeple. Uh, the East Center Street has a green that goes along it. And the uh, Manchester Garden Club is out there putting in mm. some mm -hmm. new geraniums. It, it has a sense of village charm. Yeah. And even out in cold Highland Park, you know. <laughs> <laughs> we, we had Case Mountain. <laughs> and a lot of, well, there's industry and community again. They created the bridge dam. They created the walls, the stairs, the carriage path mm -hmm. that goes around and opened it up to the public and welcomed people to come yeah. there. And that still remains today. Yeah. That could have gone that could have gone in Lot other directions. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, quite a few acres there were bought by after the Case family sold out uh, to Boise Cascade. Um, housing development for it could have been housing development all the way to Highland yeah. Park Market. Yep. But fortunately, and that's that's why I say Manchester still retains that that charm, that village charm. Mm -hmm. Because people stand up for, let's not pave, right. <laughs> let's not let's not build houses there. Um, there was an effort at one time to build condos on the Great Lawn, yeah. and where the mansions are. Mm -hmm. mm. Uh, one of the homeowners was going to develop these condos, build a a nice road right through the middle, so you could go up to Forest Street, and um, it, it just the people rose up against it. Yeah. Um, and so there, there is a retention. Some things are lost. We did have urban redevelopment in the sure. North End where all the old buildings were torn down. They're going to get rid of property. That's yeah. how they're going to, you know. Well, that's been the, yeah, that the effort to get rid of poverty has been the source of so many unintended consequences. Yeah. It's just. And it's good intentions. Yeah. And poor results, unfortunately. Yeah. yeah. Well, I think we we've definitely had a good time for that. You guys have been absolutely outstanding, honestly. Thank you so much. It's, well, it's uh, you know I love Ryan having this chance to sit with Susan. I know and talk about the history of this place because I have, you know, I have a perspective. I lived in Manchester for, uh, gosh, about seven or eight years, mm -hmm. so I feel a, a real connection to Manchester. But my knowledge of it doesn't begin to approach <laughs> her, so I feel like I'm getting the real skinny. I know, me too. Right. Yeah, I feel the same way. I don't. And Susan, yes, tell us what you <laughs> tell us. So Susan is 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 Manchester's historian, and she for the bicentennial has put together. Why don't you tell us a little bit about it? Yeah, this was 23 walks for 2023. <laughs> 
and I came up with 23 walks. If you go to at least 10, I have a rubber stamp, a bicentennial rubber stamp. Mm -hmm. If you go to at least 10, you might qualify to win a bicentennial coin. Ooh, okay. But, of course, the main thing is to come on the different walks, the railroad, couple of railroad mm. walks, one from the north end to Center Spring Park, one from the south end. Um, this past Saturday, we went to Hollywood, our housing development by E.J. Hall, H-O-L-L, -L, mm -hmm. Hollywood. <laughs> That's Scarborough, Lancaster, Wellington, okay. Winchester, Cromwell, little streets, um, the 1920s yeah. development. So, so invite all our podcast our listeners podcast to listeners, come. Yes. This is available at town libraries, the town hall, and the Manchester so History Center. So it's a description of all the walks, and you yeah. can also, it's like your passport book. You it's can your get passport it book, yeah. And the town of Manchester Historical Society, there's also a website, correct? Yes, you can you can get this online. And what, what website is, is that? Manchesterhistory.org. Perfect. And if you go to the events page, it'll there'll be a link you can click, and it. Fantastic. Oh, this is so yeah. exciting to sing, to to see. We are recording this on the second day of spring. Yeah. And this is you know this is as good as a robin. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. If there wasn't a sign that spring's here. Yeah. Right? We go to a lot of the Vills. We oh, go to cool. Woodbridge, uh, the the Manchester Green. We go to Buckland. We go to these different yeah. areas of town. We could actually probably do fifty three. We could there would sure. Be, there's always something so interesting. Now, do you lead all these walks? So, do you? Is there a website with the schedule of when you do them, or is it in the booklet? Or it's in the booklet. Yeah. I'm sure we could get you a booklet before you leave. Oh, here, here. Oh, there yeah. you go. You're oh, hereby invited. <laughs> you still have time to get the coin, but I have to point out it's not not gold. It's not <laughs> It'll be gold, but it is very special. special. I have seen it. I have it is seen pretty. it. It is it's very nice. beautiful. Yeah. It's a very special coin. And Walter, you are. What are you up to currently? Are, don't you do a, a podcast as well? I do. I I with Connecticut Explored Magazine. I do a podcast called Braiding the Nutmeg, and I'm hopeful that this podcast will actually be one of the Grading the Nutmeg podcasts. It's so interesting. Absolutely, yeah. To, we'd love to share to, that with you. Yeah, yes. we'll, we'll do this as a collaboration. And um, How can know, anybody find that? Do they just look as, as on Spotify and it, Apple Music and all yeah, that it's stuff? Yeah, it, it's on all of them. Perfect. And, um, yeah, you can search for grading the nut grading the nut man it's yeah. such a it's such a strange name <laughs> it's, it's a perfect name. not a lot of competition <laughs> <laughs> not too many nutmeg po yeah, podcasts right. out there yeah. yeah yeah well that's fantastic so thank you both again for being here i'm so excited I, you the conversation has been so interesting i know i didn't do a lot of talking but <laughs> i'm happy about but that listen, it was, it's been great susan you're a yeah. star oh. it, manchester oh. <laughs> is incredibly fortunate that you have given so much of your life to the history yes, we of are. this town and it you know I, as a historian i appreciate how invaluable the knowledge someone like you acquires over the years is and um i i, I want you to know how much the people of <laughs> connecticut appreciate you and um, 
You're, do, you're doing God's work. Thank, well, thank you. Thank you very much, Walter. That means a lot. It's Thanks. true. It's true. Well, I'm, and I'm appreciative of both of you for being here and for just sharing your knowledge with everybody because I think that that's kind of the point of all this is to is to share it with everybody as much as we can, get people, you know, let people know what, what has been going on for so long. And, I, you know, we're, 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 we're all very lucky to have both of you. So thank you so much. Well, it's great fun. Thank you. And, yeah. and you have great ring lights. <laughs> <laughs> thank you for the lights. I appreciate that, Walt. All right, well, that's going to do it for us for the Tiny Podcast today. Thank you all for being with us, and we hope to see you on the next episode. Have a good one. Thanks, Walt. Thank you so much, guys. That was great. That was so great.